Hi, this is Kutsianaki, and welcome to episode three of Down to the Struts. This week, I'm excited to share with you my moment in the hot seat, giving an interview with my friend, Essen Zafar, host of the podcast, Unfair Nation. Essen is a civil rights lawyer, educator, and policymaker dedicated to fighting structural inequality. When I sat down with Essen, we talked about my experiences with structural inequality as a disabled person. I hope that many of you can relate to my story. The battle against inequity and inequality has never been more important. I encourage everyone to listen to Unfair Nation. Essen's latest episode on worker power was fascinating and so important. You can visit unfairnation.com to learn more about this project and to subscribe to Essen's weekly newsletter. You can also subscribe, rate, and review the Unfair Nation podcast wherever you love to listen. Okay, let's get down to it. I'm Essen Zafar, and welcome to another episode of Unfair Nation, the podcast that discusses our nation's rising inequity and social political, and economic inequality, what it means for you, and what you can do about it. Every week, we interview one person for 25 minutes to understand their lived experience with structural inequality. And today, I'm joined by Kutsia Nucky, an attorney who lives in Washington, D.C. Hi, Kutsia. Thanks for uh, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Essen. Um, on a rainy Washington evening, in fact. Um, why don't we just start with you telling us a little bit uh, about yourself? Sure. Thanks. Uh, so I, uh, as Essen mentioned, I am an attorney and I live in Washington, D.C. I've been living in the city for about five years now. Uh, I'm originally from New Jersey, uh, so I've done work around immigration law as well as civil justice reform. Um, and one of the reasons why you're here to talk with us today is about your experience um, of losing sight. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So I have a, a, a congenital retinal condition. It's known as Leber's congenital amaurosis. Um, congenital means that I was born with it. So I've had this condition since birth and it causes vision loss over time. And, you know, I think that the experience of vision loss for me, uh, and I should, I should say that you know, people, blindness is really very much a spectrum. There are people who are born with little to no vision or have light perception. Visual impairment can run the gamut. Everyone's experience is very, very, very different and unique. And I uh, am speaking today about my particular experience. Um, although I think some of the the principles that I'll talk about are, are, are common, can be common among other people, but mostly I'll just be speaking about my own experiences. Uh, I think the experience for me was sort of twofold. There was the physical experience of the vision loss. And so grappling with, you know, your vision changing, you, you have to learn to do things differently or certain things that were easy suddenly become harder. Um, and I think I, I grew up in a, in a, in a time and in a paradigm where the, the idea around sort of assistive technology was to maximize the use of one's vision. So using aids like magnifiers and high contrast and other types of things that would facilitate the use of the eyes. And that can be very challenging when 
you, uh, you know, that's becoming really hard. It's very exhausting, um, but you're trying to hang on to your vision. So those are some of the physical aspects of vision loss. And the uh, at the same time, there's a there's a psychological effect. And I often explain it to people like um, dealing with the loss of a loved one or with or with death. You kind of go through the grieving process, the denial, the anger, um, the sadness, and you're you're dealing with the loss of this thing that you you relied on and that allowed you to live your life in a certain way that can no longer do that for you. And it's it's very it's an emotional experience that you're going through along with the sort of logistics of figuring out how to live with the the physical loss of your vision. And when did your vision loss start? I started to really lose a lot of vision. I was pretty functional, you know, through high school. I had, I used some assistive technology. I got extra time on exams. So I definitely wasn't, I was mainstream schooled. I didn't go to a blind school or anything like that, but um, I definitely needed some adaptations, but I could still see quite well during the day. I've always been night blind, but, you know, I didn't need to use a, a mobility cane during the day. I could sort of, I could sort of pass in a certain way. I could, I, I could pass as sighted. Um, and then in my mid twenties, I lost a significant amount of vision at the sort of beginning this, I think the senior year of uh, college and, and going into my, uh, the year that I was working after college as a paralegal and then starting in law school, I really started to lose a lot of vision. And it's very, very gradual. So you don't really know that it's happening or realize. And I didn't fully understand that I was going to lose vision like that until I met a specialist in my mid-20s who basically kind of walked me through the the prognosis and the process. And that was quite shocking to me because I just wasn't anticipating that. So let's talk a little bit about your experience in law school. Um, how, how was that experience vis-a-vis -vis like law school? Did you, I imagine you started experiencing some difficulties in terms of doing your daily work and in classes, um, how did your how did the power dynamics shift? You know, but, you know, did you feel like you had less power, more power to get stuff done? Was this was your school kind of helpful um, in kind of um, providing you some of the tools that you needed to get work done? Yeah, that's a really good question. But I need to start that story a step earlier. Sure. So um, I think my first real experience with sort of the injustice of the system as related to a person with a disability or the first time that I encountered a barrier. I'd always been, you know, a very, very fortunate person. I grew up with a very supportive family. I went to very good schools. I did very, very well in school. I took a lot of pride in my intellectual development and my academic success. And that was something that was very important to me. I worked really hard. Um, and I, the first time I ever encountered, you know, sort of a barrier in that regard was, um, and I always had very supportive teachers and, and mentors and people around me who, who gave me the things that I needed when I asked for them. And so I was very, 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 very lucky. Not everyone has that experience. And then uh, the first time that I really encountered a barrier to my success was with the LSAT, which is the law school entrance exam. So I, you know, I had experienced a lot of changes in my vision and the types of accommodations for testing that I was requesting for the LSAT 
were different from what I had needed in past standardized testing, like the SAT or the undergraduate entrance exam. And so um, because at the time, the LSAT um, sort of had a policy that you had to get the same accommodations that you had previously. They didn't really account for people with degenerative conditions. Um, and so they denied my request for accommodations because those accommodations were not consistent with what I'd had in the past. Uh, and though I tried to appeal that decision, uh, my appeal was denied. And so I went forward with the accommodations that they gave me, um, which was 18 point font um, mm. and a time and a half. So. Mm not the double time and the, and the comfortable font size, the 14 point font size that at the time was comfortable for me. Now I can't read print at all, but at the time that was what was comfortable for me. So um, with the LSAT, for, for those who aren't familiar, there's a section that's um, called the logic games. And they're basically like these mind puzzles and they involve a lot of numbers and they can be very visual. And in the exam, the, the logic games are set out on one page. And it's really important for to be able to see everything on one page. But with an 18-point font test, the, the the games were not on one page. They were they were I had to flip back and forth and I have random eye movement. So when I, I can't focus, if I if I move away from a page and I look back, I can't find my place easily. So I wasn't able to finish the exam and I scored really poorly. So I tried it again, and the second time I um, you know, I I just asked for the standard font size thinking, you know, this might be able to work for me. Um, and again, I asked for double time, but only got time and a half. And of course, um, as I probably should have known, or, you know, as was inevitable, the, the, the regular, uh, 10 point font size or whatever they used was too small and I couldn't read the exam again. Um, and you know, at the time I, I, I didn't understand how to advocate for myself. And so I just assumed that this circumstance and my poor LSAT scores were my own fault and that I, you know, there was nothing I could do. And so I did the best that I could. And I, I actually, you know, got, I was lucky. I got into a very decent law school um, and again, had very supportive. Uh, so going back to your original question, Essen, mm -hmm. you know, I had a lot of support from my school. Um, they really helped me through transitioning. I, I really couldn't read anymore. And the first year I didn't understand that. And so I just didn't do well because I couldn't keep up with the volume of reading, not because I didn't understand or comprehend it, but because it was physically exhausting to read hundreds and hundreds of pages a week, which is what you have to do in law school. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I they helped me through a transition where I, I moved from learning visually by reading to learning auditorily by listening, which took me a long time. But again, I was very supportive through that process. It took me a, a year to really master it. Um, but but I had a, a really positive experience. And then again, a positive experience with the bar exam, which is the licensing exam that you take at the end of law school so you can get your law license. Um, but but that LSAT experience had, you know, really reverberating ex effects on my life in where I went to law school mm. and the opportunities that resulted from where I went to law school. Um, and then also just on my, on my, like I said, there's a psychological component, you know, the, the feeling of defeat or the feeling mm. that I, you know, that, that, that this was my failure and that, you know, I, I wasn't even that just having a complete lack of knowledge that I would, could have been able to yeah. advocate for myself. You mentioned that you didn't, challenge the decisions uh, or kind of the setup, right, or the system. And this is a podcast about structural inequality. And one of the 
reasons why structural inequality is kind of so endemic is that a lot of people don't challenge it. It's part of a system. It's a structure. It feels like you can't change it. You're just one person. Do you feel like, um, in addition to what you were experiencing in terms of vision loss, do you feel like any other part of your identity, um, you're South Asian like I am, um, or any other part of your identity, do you think that that played a role in you choosing at least initially not to challenge it? I know later on you've been advocating a lot more, uh, but at that point, maybe your your age, because you were a younger person, do you think any of that played played an impact or had a role? Oh, I, I definitely think so. I think all of those things, you know, factored into the decision. But I think most importantly, when I, if I reflect back on that time, yes, I think it was definitely my age, my lack of experience, my lack of understanding of the, the, the law and like whatever protection could have potentially been available to me. And just, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I just didn't, I didn't know what I didn't know, you know, and, um, but mainly I think, you know, the, the thing that was the biggest barrier for me is that at the time I, in my identity, I still identified. And I think this is common with, with, again, I can't speak for everyone's experience, but I think it's often common with people who suffer vision loss versus people who have been blind since birth or very young childhood. I still identified very much as being sighted and I was still trying to pass. I often explain it, um, you know, as, as sort of, as sort of being in a closet, in a type of closet and sort of trying to pass as being sighted and, mm. you know, being, having, being blind or, or visually impaired or having low vision or whatever words you want to use, that was not part of my identity. That was something I hid and when I could and, um, you know, was trying to deny or ignore about myself. And I think that above all else was a huge reason why I didn't advocate for myself because I didn't view myself as a person with a disability in the way that I do now. And that has been a paradigm shift in my life and a journey that I've taken over a long time. And it's taking me a long time to get there. But um, I think most of all, leaving aside the age and maybe some of the cultural things you were referencing, I think that was the biggest block for me in terms of understanding how to advocate for myself because I didn't understand what I was advocating for in the sense that this was not part of my identity. And since then, when you've kind of accepted that part of yourself, how has how have your interactions with like systems, whether it's professional or personal or social or political, how have they kind of shifted since then? Oh, it's just been an incredible sea change. I mean, I think, you know, once I sort of, you know, there were a series of events in my life that led me to sort of change the way that I think about myself and the world around me. Um, and that has been an, an incredible paradigm shift. You know, it's very, it's very liberating and very empowering to, to finally, for me to finally realize that, uh, you know, I am not the, my vision loss is not the problem. I don't have a problem. The problem is that the world is not designed for me. Um, and, in that, in that knowledge, I feel that I can advocate for myself because I can say, you know what, this, this thing is not accessible or, you know, this isn't designed for my use. And I demand to be able to participate in the world and to have the world be designed for me. And I deserve that as a human being and being able to, and I, I am, I am proud of my blindness mm -hmm. and my vision loss. And mm -hmm. 
I feel that once I started to embrace, you know, being blind and doing things as a blind person. So I mentioned earlier, you know, when I was young, that the, the paradigm was use assistive technology that maximizes the use of your vision. Mm -hmm. So since then, because I have shifted the way that I think about this, I find assistive technology that allows me to get things done oftentimes without using my vision at all. Right. And, you know, I think that is so powerful. You know, I'm able to be so much more independent and so much more empowered mm -hmm. and such a better advocate for myself because I, I am solid in, in who I am and I'm very comfortable with my blindness and right. I, it's part of who I am. And I think, you know, you know, going back to your question, I think that, the way that the world is structured doesn't allow people to do that. It's you yeah. have to fight against the structures yeah. that don't accept and, your blindness and be innovative, right? Yeah, like uh, maybe carry around uh, um, a small carry-on luggage from the metro <laughs> to the <laughs> podcast studio, right? Um, yeah, it's creativity, and it's also. You know, it, it's funny. People just, I think... Do you want to tell people what I'm referring to? Yeah. So uh, Essen and I were walking to the metro and I had a luggage with me and I was, I told him, you grab one end of the luggage, I'll grab the other end of the luggage and then we can walk together and you can, that's how you can guide me. Um, so, I mean, I had my cane, but I just didn't know where I was going. So it was helpful to have him do that. But yeah, you get really creative right. and you become more free to do that. And sure. and it's just, but it's funny. I mean, I, re I read an article a few years ago in the New York Times. It was, I think it was an op-ed. And it was the title was very provocative. It was why people fear the blind. Mm. And, you know, I think that for for sighted people, sight feels so fundamental. They mm -hmm. cannot fathom that one can function without it. And yeah. I think when you they're scared, right? Yeah. And yeah. there and there's another concept in there that is, you know, that that kind of permeates our society and our social mm. social and cultural and economic structures which is ableism which is this idea that I am I am sighted I am more able than you and therefore you know I know how to do this better than you can um and I experience that in my 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 blind friends and colleagues experience it every day this mm. presumption that if you're doing something differently than someone else you know I I'll give you an example that's more sure. concrete so you know oftentimes what we're trained to do is you know there's lots of escalators in DC and the metros mm -hmm. and everywhere around and so for safety you're supposed to reach out and touch the the banister mm. to feel whether it's going up or down. Mm -hmm. And that's how you check to make sure you're going up or going the direction sure. you want to go. And so sometimes people will see me do that and they'll grab the arm that I use my cane with or like grab me or try to pull me back because they think that I'm going down the escalator. They're not understanding what I'm doing. And then in the as a result of that, if you take someone's arm that they're holding their cane with, yeah. you, you take away their their whole sense of um, orientation and which actually makes them yeah. less safe. And I don't believe that people are malicious or are right. trying to do something out of any ill intention, but it's, it's this, it's this ableism, this idea that, you know, I have ability above yours mm -hmm. and therefore I, I know better than you. Right. I mean, I'm thinking about that just now trying to imagine that and I'm getting scared. Right, because I'm seeing visions of myself like falling down the escalator <laughs> because somebody jerked me, right? Because yeah. you, it's unpredictable. Yeah. And now every time I'm trying to reach out and touch the banister, I'm a little afraid 
that somebody will see that and like grab my arm, right? I can't, I can't imagine how like, and it's making me anxious just thinking about it. Yeah. And it's just, it's interesting people's notions, you know, you would never go grab a random person in the street, but I think people think that's okay because of this idea that just is so deeply ingrained in our society. And like I said, I don't ascribe ill intention to any one individual person who does those things. Mm. They are, they are conditioned in that way in the same way that we're conditioned by structural racism and and lots of other things and and sexism and all those things. And, and this is just another one of those things. Um, And it, it's, it's very challenging to kind of work against it, but I, I, I feel very hopeful. You know, I think that as, you know, technology becomes so, so advanced and, mm. and there's more, you know, the world starts to be designed more mm. to be accessible to people with, with different types of conditions who have different sorts of needs and different ways the world needs to be designed for them. I have hope that, you know, eventually you, yeah. you see a blind person in the street, they seem like they know what you're doing and they keep you keep on walking, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it's, and, and also, you know, our assumptions change. I, I believe that's possible. I have a lot of hope for that, but I think there's a lot of work to do. Right. Now, I know you work on immigration issues mm-hmm. as a lawyer, um, and so kind of working on these issues um, is not really your professional background. But like, what would you, you know, if you're, if you're speaking with somebody, a policymaker, and she's kind of has some mandate to work on these issues, what's, and she doesn't have a lived experience like you do, what's kind of your viewpoint? Like, what's, how, what's the kind of advice you want to give her? What's something you want her to think about? as she's creating policy for blind people or kind of trying to create a world that is uh, accessible? So the biggest thing I would say is, Again, I am not I'm not a disability rights or disability law scholar, but I am Nobody's a, perfect. a person in my own experience. But, um, you know, I think that the, the Americans with Disabilities Act or the ADA was, a, you know, it was passed in 1990 under the, the first Bush administration was a, you know, really the culmination of a lot of work that a lot of disability rights advocates did for a long, long, long time and was really a, a watershed piece of legislation. And it really changed the game because it opened the door for people with disabilities to have access to housing, have access to employment, mm-hmm. um, to have protection mechanisms against discrimination. Uh, so it was really, really groundbreaking. And it, it established this concept of reasonable accommodation, mm-hmm. which is really important. But I think that in the world we live in now, I think there's a little bit further to go. So I think there's a difference between accommodation and inclusion. Mm. So if I was talking to a policymaker, I would want them to take that step forward. So not the idea that, um, you know, we should provide reasonable accommodation because someone is disabled. It's that we should design a world that's inclusive of everyone, regardless of what's what's up with their life. So a mm-hmm. good example I use is, you know, a policy um, example is, is curb cuts. You know, mm-hmm. curb cuts were, I guess, originally designed for people in wheelchairs and they were, you know, mm-hmm. life altering. It mm-hmm. made it a lot easier for someone in a wheelchair to, mm-hmm. um, to yeah. get around. And, and it was really important, an important thing, but they also help people with strollers who or have small children or like people me. with back pain yeah. like you or, you know, and so if we think about the world in this broader way and we think about accommodating everyone, mm-hmm. um, there's a certain, um, I think, 
a little bit of a sometimes a separate but equal idea in this um, idea of reasonable accommodation. So I'll give you another example. Mm-hmm. Um, the company that um, I, I don't recall the name, but the company that that makes Uno cards mm-hmm. uh, was really lauded, and I, and I think this was wonderful. They they came out with a set of Uno cards that have Braille on them, so mm-hmm. Braille Uno yeah. cards, which was right. super fantastic, but. You know, I would love to live in a world that went one step further, which is that every deck of Uno cards you buy has Braille on them. Sure, yeah. So everyone's getting right. a Braille set of cards. So right. in no matter what circumstance you're in, if you randomly are mm-hmm. with someone who mm-hmm. needs Braille Uno cards and you're mm-hmm. playing Uno, mm-hmm. there's Braille Uno cards. Yep. Um, My business cards have Braille on them, but I would want every but all the business cards to have Braille on them. It's kind of just cool, actually. by default, yeah. right? Right, right? And in, again, I'm speaking about one type of disability because that's my lived experience, but. Mm-hmm. I, Ditto for for all of like different kinds of uh, you know neurodiverse conditions, mm-hmm. physical disabilities, sure. you know all different sorts of things. If we if we think about the world in this way, um, as opposed to you know saying to someone you know what you figure it out, you know you figure it out, right. or, or or asking instead of saying you know what's your disability or whatever, saying mm-hmm. okay what do you would this be helpful? Would that mm-hmm. be helpful? Mm-hmm. And being sort of proactive as opposed mm-hmm. to making the disabled person kind of mm-hmm. do all the work mm-hmm. of, um, of sort of having to constantly advocate and, and tell for themselves and, and have to explain to people what they need. So last question. Um, what, you know, especially over the last 10 years, when you said like kind of your identity is kind of um, solidified a little bit for lack of a better word. What's something surprising you've experienced um, or something that, you know, when you started kind of on this journey, let's say after the LSAT, you had a vision of like, this is where my life's headed. Maybe it wasn't a happy vision. Maybe it was. And now 10 or so years have passed. Um, anything interesting, unexpected, surprising that you experienced? During the last like decade or so, yeah. So I'm I'm 35 now. Not scared to admit it. <laughs> um, <laughs> if I had to to have a chat with my 25 year old self, right? You know, I would tell them that you have a lot to look forward to, and you know, I I honestly would not have it any other way. I think right. awesome. My life is totally enriched by this, and I, you know, I think it's it's, it's really changed the course of my life. And I think it's, you know, everyone has their own sort of disability inclusion journey. And, Mm -hmm. you know, some people get to a certain point or, or, or shift the way they think some people don't. And, um, you know, everyone's experience is valid for what it is because that's their experience. But Mm -hmm. I, I love my, I'm really happy that I have a, a blindness community that I'm a part of and uh-huh. a broader kind of disability community that I'm a part of. And right. I feel that this experience has only added things to my life and not taken them away. And I honestly feel like in respecting myself, I I, I feel that I have greater respect of others. And mm. I think that that is really empowering and enables me to just be a better, better human in general. Yeah. <laughs> so... Well, thanks for schlepping out here in the rain uh, on a really cold Washington, D.C. evening. Um, We will put some of the uh, stuff you've talked about in our show notes, like uh, maybe a link to the UNO website. (laughs) Um, Happy holidays, since we're close to the holidays. Um, Safe travels, could see. I don't know if you're traveling anywhere. Um, And with that, 
we are near the end of another episode of Unfair Nation. Uh, we're probably not going to record anything over the holidays, um, so tune in next year for another episode of Unfair Nation. Um, and until then, happy holidays. Thanks for listening to episode three of Down to the Struts. This podcast would not be possible without the energy and creativity of Anna Wu, Adrian Kong, Ilana Nevins, and Avery Annapol. Special thanks to Essen Zafar for sharing the audio to Unfair Nation. If you want to learn more about the Down to the Struts podcast, you can visit www.downtothestruts.com and connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Also remember to subscribe, rate, and review Down to the Struts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Thanks again for listening and join me for episode four coming in two weeks so we can get back down to it.